Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Okay, people, welcome back to the Dana Browns podcast. And I got a special guest today. Um, I know this guy personally um, from when he was a young buck, young kid coming to my camps. But now he's a seven-time Emmy Award-winning director and producer. He produced the great documentary that we all watched during the quarantine, during the pandemic, uh, The Last Dance. And I want to welcome Jason here. My God, let's clap it up for Jay. It's a pleasure for you to be here, bro. Um, and I, I just want to say again, the chronicle, the, the chronicles that you did was amazing. Uh, it brought back so many memories for me because I was playing in the league during a lot of that times. And mm. it brought flashbacks to me of things that I had never even remembered because everything's such a blur. And man, it was just a pleasure to sit back and actually realize my accomplishments saying to myself, oh my God, I was actually there during yep. those times. So once again, I salute you on that and, and welcome to the podcast, bro. Thanks for having me, man. This is um, this one and, and I did another one with Bob Lobel and Mike Lynch and being a, a Boston guy, these are like two of the, the biggest thrills that I've had in all the press that we had to do, because this was, you guys were my heroes growing up. I mean, we were just a little bit of background for, for Dana and I. My mom worked at BC forever. And um, when I was like nine, eight, nine years old, I would go down and just be a gym rat at Robert Center, because she would bring me to work and I had nothing to do. And I would walk down to the gym and Dana was a a freshman, you probably don't remember this. I, I would just be the guy rebounding for you and Steve Benton and Jamie Benton and um, Tyrone Scott and all those, the, the, the OGs, the early guys. This is right when Coach O'Brien got in, right. uh, started. So grew into, they would let me come on road trip. If there was a bus road trip, they would let me come on that. And my dad and I went down to the NIT into the Big East tournament in New York and, and they sat him right behind the bench and I was sitting on the bench for a lot of those, um, a lot of those fun moments. Um, the Garden, they played in the Boston Garden back in those days, the Big East games, because John Thompson didn't want to play in, in Robert Center. Absolutely. So every other Saturday, I got to go early and set up the locker room with the equipment managers and then shoot by myself on the parquet floor in an empty Boston Garden. I was 10 years old. This is 1987, 88. This is like in the heyday of the Boston Celtics. So those memories are among my favorites of my life. And Dana obviously was in the middle of all of that because he was the superstar at, at, at that point. So so this is to come full circle and talk to you like this. It's it's quite a trip. Appreciate it, bro. Definitely appreciate it. Now, before we get started, we have this thing I call shoot to trade. So I ask you three questions just off the cuff. It could be about anything. So mm -hmm. we're going to do shoot to trade. First question is going to be if you could interview or do a documentary on anyone in the world, dead or alive. Mm -hmm. you've, you've already had one of your heroes, Michael Jordan. Is there anyone above that? If it could be anyone else, who would it be, dead or alive? I don't know if it's above Michael because it's a different category, but I am fascinated by the story of Lauren Hill. And I don't think that enough people from today's generation understand how talented and what a game changer she was. And she's been, I mean, she, she had that huge burst with the Fugees first and then on her own. Um, I think she won five Grammys in, in one night and, and it was the first hip hop album to ever get best album. And then she kind of has fallen off the map, but she's been enigmatic and she's in and out. She's almost like that movie Eddie and the Cruisers back in the day where you don't know what happened to the people. So that's one of them. Um, 
you know, there's a lot. I'm really excited to do stuff in and out of sports. Um, That's an amazing pick, though. That that would be a great documentary because there's such a backstory that people don't know. I've done a little bit of research on her, on her story, and that would be an amazing story. So that's yes. a great, great, great pick by you. Now, being a documentarian, you've been able to chronicle a lot of different things. 30 for 30s you've done. Uh, I know you've done some 24-7 uh, with Mayweather Boxing. So you, you've really done some different things. But what's the best live event that you weren't able to chronicle, but you were actually there and like, oh, my God, I just seen that? When the, um, when the Red Sox won the World Series at home for the first time, and I think it was 85 or 95 years in 2013, I surprised my brother. I told my brother, Brandon, who lives in Needham, that I was coming home from New York to watch the game with him. It was game six against the Cardinals. And I had bought tickets to the game the night before. Um, I had to call my accountant and say, can I afford this? Like, is this okay? Because <laughs> they were like a couple of grand a pop at that point. But I'm all about, I don't spend money on a lot of like, you know, material things, but I'm all about spending money on experiences. And that was the best money I've ever spent because I came home, he picked me up at Logan and I told him, we're not just watching the game, we're going to the game tonight. And we walked down to watch batting practice and we were like front row behind the dugout. And he was like, all right, we got to get to our seats. And I said, no, these are the seats. And I, I showed him the, the tickets that we scanned in. So we sat right behind the Sox dugout to watch them win the title at Fenway Park for the first time since the early 1900s. So, so that's probably number one for me. And people, if for people who don't know, it's, it was, yeah, like you said, it was 80 something years and, the curse of the Bambino was like it was never going to be lifted. So that wasn't amazing. That was lifted. They won in 04 and they won in 07, but they won on the road. They hadn't won at Fenway. Oh, exactly. That's right. That's home. right. It's like it was 85 or 95 years. The curse of the Bambino was like the 86 year one. They won in, in 04. That was great to watch on TV, but to be there in person for this one was incredible. Okay. All right. Now, last question. I asked everyone this question. If you were to do your own story, who would play you in that story? Anybody in the world, again, dead or alive? <laughs> um, dead or alive? I think you got to go. It's got to be an average-looking white dude who's around <laughs> my age. <laughs> I think uh, with a three-point set shot, right? <laughs> I think if <laughs> if DiCaprio made himself a little bit uglier, he could play me. So, so maybe Leo. All right, all right. I like that. All right, all right, all right. Great. That was good. I appreciate you playing a little game with us now. The other, By the way, the runner up for that second question was the buzzer beater you hit against Georgetown. And I'm still trying to catch my breath from that because to put it in perspective, Georgetown was top three in the country at that point, maybe Absolutely. certainly top five. Absolutely. And I almost got a technical during that game because I was under the I was the ball boy under the hoop. And when they would shoot foul shots, I was waving my towel. I was I was crossing the baseline. And the referee finally had to tell Coach O'Brien, like, we're going to give you a tech. And Coach O'Brien was yelling at me, but I was just a, a wild man. I was a wild kid, really, really into it. Dana, they miss a foul shot at the end. There's, there's no timeouts. Dana takes it coast to coast and hits, I think it was a spin at the elbow and to win the game. And he ran back down the court, and I was running – back down towards him and the next thing I know I'm on the bottom of a pile of like 15 dudes who were the BC basketball team and I weighed about 60 pounds at the time so I'm still trying to catch my breath from that but as far as being in person and watching something happen like that that was that was quite a thrill as well yeah that was the only time we beat Georgetown in my four years they were they were ranked every year they had Alonzo and Mutombo at the same yeah, time at the same actually time. so it was an unbelievable time. team 
Now, I want to step a little bit to the side because I want people to know a story. And I hope you don't mind telling me the story that you had an event early on in your life that was, I remember it. It's like, it's because it was, I remember going to see you when this event happened. So I want, I want you to explain this event because I want people to know that there's all types of adversity in life. And people think that life is just this grand thing, just like they think I just showed up at the NBA and I didn't work. I want them to understand. Um, Jason went to my camps when he was younger. And I, I think it was the night of a, of a camp that we had. And my mom calls me and she said, we have to go to the hospital immediately to see Jason. So I'm going to start it off there. And I want you to explain to people what happened yeah. and really how really our families became really you know, yeah. really tight because my mom and your mom really became tight off of the camps in this incident. So explain that. Yeah. So, so when I was 13, my first day of, of summer after eighth grade, I was our first day off of summer vacation. My friends and I went golfing and it was at a, you know, kind of a crappy public course. And we were teeing off on the 16th hole. I think it was like my second time golfing ever. And I bet my dad $10 I was going to break a hundred that day. So we're teeing off on the 16th hole and the 18th hole is coming this way, the other direction. This guy hit it over the trees to the base of RT. It's like 60 feet away from us. So picture home plate to the pitcher's mound. And my friends are getting out of the way because he's still got like 250 left to his, to the 18th hole. So he's going to come up and whack the ball as hard as he can. I waited for him to come over and I said, your ball's right there. And he said, okay. And I turned to my left or to my right to walk to the trees to get out of the way so that this guy could hit. And he didn't wait for me to get out of the way. So he wound up with a three iron as hard as he could and lined it off the side of my head, my speech center, like right, right in here. Um, hard enough that it went well past him in the air off of my head because he was that close. So it hit my speech center, uh, shattered my skull, and I'm still numb right here. Um, and so I basically had to kind of relearn to talk that summer. I had brain surgery that night. I still have a, a, a scar, 75 stitch scar in the left side of my head. Um, I had a subdural hematoma, depressed skull fracture. It was really, really bad. And if it hit one inch one way or the other, we're not sitting here having this conversation because right. that would have been a wrap. So that, you know, I had to basically quit certainly football. And I was never the same. I was never going to be like a basketball player, but I was never the same. I could never get under the hoop. I was always kind of gun shy about getting elbowed. Um, so that made me really focus on baseball. Right. Um, and then I ended up going to school because of baseball. And that got me introduced to some people in this business, which I had always wanted to be in. So looking back, I mean, it was an awful experience, but looking back, I have no regrets because Everyone has dealt their hand in life. And like you said, nothing ever comes easy. That was one thing that I realized every time I do any of these things, you watch Mayweather work out, you watch you work out, you watch any of these athletes. It's, it's always the most talented ones who happen to show up first and leave last. And that's not, it, it, it's, that, that, that's not a coincidence. Um, it's not just the talent that comes with it. It's the, the, the success comes from the hard work and the talent. Cause you know, plenty of guys in the NBA who just didn't have the heart for it and could have gone way farther. Right. But watching the Bulls and, and particularly Jordan and Pippen and those guys, when you break it down, it could have gone south at any point for them. Like the, we took it as a given that they're going to make the finals every year that Michael suits up in the 90s. And you know as well as anybody that it's not that easy. They went down 2-0 in, in 93 to the Knicks. If they lose game three, 
there's probably no last dance because so, right. there wouldn't have been that kind of dynasty. So that was just, a, like you said, just taking some adversity and, and then um, doing your best to, to, to get through it and have it make you stronger and, and try and make a better life out of a, a bad hand. Great, great story, man. I appreciate you sharing that because, you know. And I, I should add, too, sorry to interrupt you. I should add that I, I get home from the hospital. I was in the hospital for eight or nine days. And unbeknownst to me, my dad or my mom had reached out to your mom. And I knew your mom from being ball boy, and I would help her with some of the events that she put on. Great lady. I knew your sister. Um, and the next thing I know, I think it was the second day that I was home, and you saw me when I, I still had a black eye. My head was shaved. My scar was right there, and I couldn't speak. Right. But Dana walks in. I'm sitting on the couch, like, watching TV. A couple of my friends were over, I think, which is, like, visiting me to get well soon kind of thing. And Dana walks in with a basketball and a vat of Oreo cookie ice cream, which was my favorite ice cream, into my living room at my house. I mean, this was, you were Michael Jordan to me at that point. He pulled up in my my dream car, a red 300ZX, pulls up <laughs> into the driveway. I think it was brand new at that point. Right. And uh, that was coming off of your rookie year in Seattle. So I hadn't seen you since since the BC days, but um, that was that the, the, the way that that lifted my spirits, man, I cannot thank you enough because I'll never forget that. Appreciate it. And I'll never forget the strength you had. I, I went to the hospital and actually saw you. And I don't even know if you were you weren't even awake at the time. So just to see the progress and to know that what you've become is a great inspiration to everyone out there. So that's why I wanted to tell that story. But let's get back to the Michael Jordan doc. Now, I'm always and I didn't I didn't I wanted to ask you, I didn't want to have a pre pre meeting talk and all this because I wanted to know personally live when I asked you these questions. You're the director, not only the producer, the director, but you also did the interviews. Mm -hmm. So who was the person who made that initial call to Mike? Like, yo, Mike, we doing this doc. I need to holler at you. Like, who was that you? Or did you put the feeler out there first? How did no, that go down? He, he's got a couple of managers. He's got a business partner named Curtis Polk who owns a piece of the Hornets and, and runs operations for the Hornets. And he's got a manager named, named Esty Portnoy, who goes back to the David Falk days when Falk represented Michael. Um, and they came to me in July of 2016 and asked if I'd be interested in directing a doc about Jordan and the Bulls. Wow. It took them two years, though. I, of course, I said yes, no matter what. But it took them two years to get that deal into place with Netflix and ESPN and to figure out how they're going to split all the profits. These are like billion dollar entities, the NBA, Netflix, ESPN, and the Jordan brand are all worth anywhere from three to $15 billion, depending on how you evaluate it. So it took so long. I went off and made Andre the Giant, that documentary for HBO. Saw that. Unbelievable. And when I was finished with that, they still hadn't, you know, <laughs> dotted all the I's and crossed the T's, but the timing worked out. So it wasn't, they, they were smart enough to, to put me in front of Michael a few times just to hang out with no cameras around so that he got to know me and to trust me. Um, but we didn't interview him until almost two years after they first approached me about doing the doc. Wow. Yeah. So were you still in production? Um, or was it still the idea still going on about the production? Or you said, I'm just going to do it myself. And they and you once you reached out to them, they got back in touch with you. Like, they got back in touch with me and they said, you know, we need to hire a crew. And, and um, 
we opened up some edit rooms, some offices in, in downtown in Tribeca in New York. And uh, we had a crew working on this thing for like six months before we did our first interviews. We interviewed uh, Commissioner Stern, rest in peace. And we interviewed a few other people just to kind of flick the jab a little bit and, and get our rhythm going. And then we interviewed Michael about two weeks into production. But we interviewed 105 people for that documentary. And the Over. schedule must have been crazy because everyone had their own oh, thing going insane. on from the side. Insane. But he drafted a letter and signed it and said, like, Jason's going to be reaching out to you because people, I'm sure, call his associates all the time and say, we want to do a doc about Michael. But this one, he vouched for me so that when we call Magic Johnson, he's already got a letter from Michael saying, like, these guys are going to be calling you. I'm participating in this. I sign off on this. So so that helped tremendously. I'd still be on the phone now if he didn't write that letter. Wow. Okay, great. Um, great insight. Now. When you're inquiring about doing the doc, are there parameters put on the topics? Now, do you say, hey, we're gonna talk about the gambling, we're gonna talk about your father, because all those things were in the doc. Now, was that was that put up front or did you did his people or Mike actually say, Hey, just ask me whatever you want? How did that go? That was a long that was like an oil tanker and it took a while for us to turn that thing around because at the beginning of it, it was, this is only going to be about the 97, 98 season. Right. You're not going to interview Michael. We're only going to use the footage that we shot in that 97, 98 season. And you can't interview anybody else either. So I was like, we can't, I can't make an eight hour. At that point it was eight episodes. I was like, I can't make an eight hour doc out of just this footage. Like it's good footage, but it's not enough to, to go wall to wall for eight hours. So then it was okay, you can interview him once. Okay, you can interview him twice, but nothing about baseball, nothing about gambling, nothing about his dad. And then slowly, it, it was a years long process for us to work with them, get them to trust us and just be really, really patient to the point where when we sat down, they asked me to email him some of the topics that we were gonna discuss for the first interview. And when I saw him that day, he came in and he was like, hey, by the way, I got your email. I didn't even look at it. You could ask me anything you want. I'm going to answer you honestly. So everything we wanted to do, he was an open book. He told me at the end of the first interview, if you do your job right, I'll never have to do this again. And I think if you're him and you've been interviewed 20,000 times, your dream is to never have to sit down for an interview again. So he was ready to tell everything and just have it all on the table so that no questions ever had to be asked of him again. Wow. Wow. That's that. You know that that's access that he doesn't give to probably anyone else. I don't I don't ever remember. Not even a mod shot. He gets maybe a half an hour. <laughs> I still feel incredibly lucky, man. Like I don't know what I did in a past life or or to deserve that access to him and and to be you know one of the people who who helps to tell his story to lead a team of people helping to tell his story. It, it's like a dream come true. I I can't I can't be thankful enough. Now as you're shooting the doc and you're going through it, are you saying to yourself, maybe you halfway through or at some certain point, like, this shit is going to be special? Like, do you know that because of the pandemic, it, it almost like, I think I remember hearing you say you had to really pre-push this thing earlier and earlier yeah. because ESPN was asking for programming at this time. So yeah. as you're shooting the doc and you're trying to put this thing together and you're rushing, do you know that it's going to be this significant piece of the culture at the time? Certainly no, because we didn't know what a pandemic even was really at that point. There's no way we could have predicted that. Um, and I thought it would be very popular with sports fans because Jordan and the Bulls are 
so fascinating and no one had really done a deep dive on them. And they were gonna, they were supposed to show this during the finals. Right. So it was going to be like episode one and two would be on like Wednesday night and game one of the finals was on Thursday night. And then episode three and four was on Saturday night and game two was on Sunday night. And it was looking like LeBron was going to be in the finals. So I was like, here we go. It's going to be just another goat debate for, for, you know, two straight weeks. But I thought that all the sports people would watch it. And then maybe some people who didn't care about sports, but then when the pandemic happened, there was literally nothing else to watch. Right. As far as when we're making it, I mean, you never know how it's going to be until it actually starts to come out. And I had seen all those episodes so many hundreds of times that none of it was really new to me, but there are some moments that I knew like when he, when he gets emotional at the end of episode seven and he's talking about, you know, what it takes to win and what it takes to be a leader. That's the first thing that I edited. I came back to the edit room. This was, you know, three years ago. And I put that music underneath that. And I said, all right, this is going to be something that we need to, we need to put this like front and center at the end of one of the episodes. This is going to be a powerful moment. Or when I saw the footage of him crying on the ground on Father's Day after he won the title, I had never heard that footage and heard him sobbing. And I thought, all right, that's another one. Um, and then the things that are fun to cut that you hope that people are going to like. I never got, I'm a huge, like you, I'm a huge um, old school hip hop fan. So I never got to see that footage of that era cut together with hip hop because it was always like rock and roll or something. Hip hop wasn't really that mainstream at the time. So to use I'm Bad by LL over the 63 point game, that was just fun for me to edit and fun to watch. And I'm so glad that that resonated with so many people who loved that music of the era and also loved basketball in that era. You know, Eric B, uh, tons of people who are my musical heroes to put them together with that footage was really fun too. So I, I had a feeling that that was going to resonate. Wow. So a couple more questions that you, now what you said, the process was how four year process from start to finish from the original conversation with Netflix yeah. and ESPN. It was a four year process. Yep. And did you waver at, did you ever think at some point it's not going to happen? I, obviously you did the, the Andre, the giant documentary and you kept proceeding with your career, but did you, did you ever get to a point where, okay, this is not going to happen? I was always skeptical because they had been trying to make it happen since 1999, a year after the footage was shot. Um, and there was always a reason why a roadblock of a reason why they didn't want to do it. And ultimately it's just like, what side of the bed Michael wakes up on that morning. If he doesn't want to do it anymore, the whole thing's over. So even to have that first meeting with him, if he didn't vibe with me at all, then he could have said, I don't like this director start over. And that could have killed the project. So there's a lot of like, if you think back on how many times it could have failed, it's staggering. But in the moment, no, I was just trying to keep my head down. And luckily it took years of research, but I've been researching this story since I was eight years old, going to the Nike store, buying posters and reading every Sports Illustrated I can get my hands on. Right. Wow. So last question, um, again, amazing story, but I talked to you a little bit about this and I want you to explain to the people what your next project is, because I was actually hearing what your, what your next project is. It kind of brought back a lot of memories for me. So um, explain to the people what's coming up for you uh, in terms of the projects in the future. There's a few, um, like I said, I have, um, I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to branch out side of just sports. I'll always do sports stuff because I'm always going to be fascinated by it. And that's my bread and butter. There's a couple of music things that I'm doing. There's a, a big one that, that coming up that I can't 
talk about yet because it's, it hasn't been announced yet. But that has to do with science, which is not my. Uh, but it's it's you want to watch this, believe me. This okay. this is going to be like a huge story in the world in the next few months. Um, but the one I think you're talking about is um, I've always been obsessed with with true crime, and particularly coming from Boston, I've also been really interested in the perception of Boston as one of, if not the most racist major city in the country. And it's something that um, people from Boston who feel the way that I do are ashamed of, of that reputation. And I've always wondered what the history of that is, how far back does it go? And anecdotally, what is the evidence here that, that, that is that? Um, so there was, a, there was a murder case involving a white man who said that a black man killed his wife and shot him back in the late 80s. Uh, and it turned out that that was not the case and that he had ulterior motives and he was exploiting the fact that most of Boston was prejudiced and believed sight unseen that if a white guy says a black guy shot he and his wife, they were going to believe him. You know this uh, better than I do that they were, you know, banging down doors and doing stop and frisk on all. They, they put 100 extra officers on the street for three months in all of the the. Um, the predominantly black areas of Boston looking for this phantom guy who really didn't exist so. That's one that we'll be uh, we'll be getting into. That's going to be on HBO um, probably sometime end of next year. Wow, and that's that was this, the summer of my senior year. And when he says those things, literally, he's I would be at the park and five cab cars would pull up, and it'd be pull out with all undercover cops, just everybody on the ground. Yeah, you'd be standing at the bus stop, just people would you know randomly, and my parents were really nervous about me going to these different parks and being out night at out at night during the summer. So yeah, it was a very scary time. And um, yeah, it was, it was an, it's going to be an amazing story because after watching the, the Michael Jordan doc, I know you're going to go deep into that. So I'm, I'm very interested yeah. in seeing that. And, and, and again, giving the, the people all the perspectives of Boston that we know as well. So. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, a white kid from Newton is not the one who should be telling the story because there's a lot of blind spots that I have that, that I, I didn't go through the experience that you went through of cops pulling up and things like that. So we're going to partner, I think, with the Boston Globe on this. Right. And their reporters are going to make sure that that we're telling the story the right way. And I'm really just going to kind of get out of the way and, and let the people who experienced it tell the story and not try and put my fingerprints on it at all. Absolutely. Um... I just want to thank you again, man. I appreciate it, Jay. I know you're busy, man. I know you're doing big things, and I appreciate you coming on the Dane Burrows podcast. And love to have you back in the future when you're having some upcoming things. And please say hello to your family. And once again, I salute you. Appreciate you being here, bro. Thanks a lot. Peace. We'll do it in person next time. We'll play a little horse. You spot me a couple of letters. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks again. Thank you. Peace. Thank you for watching the Dana Barrels Believe in Celtics podcast. We'll be back next week with another guest. Peace, people. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.